Alright, so we are on book 26 out of 27 in the New Testament. So we will be in the letter of Jude. If it was four verses shorter, it would be considered the shortest letter or the shortest book in the Bible. But it is only three um, verses longer than 3 John. So therefore, it is the second shortest letter or book in the Bible. So we are going to be in the letter of Jude. Some of you may have heard, I'm thinking about uh, the next couple of weeks, maybe taking Revelation and breaking it up in two weeks just because there's a whole there's a whole lot there in the first four or five chapters in the letter to the seven churches and then of course a lot of, there's a lot of apocryphal or there's a lot of um, apocalyptic languages um, but maybe just looking at maybe taking that in two weeks instead of trying to put all of that into one single week but we will see so tonight we're in the letter of Jude and as we have been doing looking at who wrote it who they wrote it to when they wrote it what they wrote about and maybe some things that might stick out for you and I that when we get to the book of Jude and having an understanding about why the book matters and why the book matters to you and I. So we start off with who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Jude? Who? Jude? Jude, the brother of Christ. Okay, so yes. So it's Jude that wrote it. Um, If you go back to, I think, Mark chapter 8 or 9, don't quote me on that, but there's a list that um, Mark gives of the half-siblings of Jesus. And not only is James listed in there, but also Jude is listed in there. So as we talked about when we were in the book of James, that um, from what we know from biblical scripture, that none of Jesus' family, apart from his mother and probably his father, Um, his stepfather, none of his siblings believed in who he was until after he had been crucified and after he rose from the dead. So as we talked about in the letter of James that how James probably did not believe who Jesus was the Messiah um, until he was crucified and came back and then James believed. And then James went on to be one of the leading figures in the church in Jerusalem. So in the same vein, Jude is a half-brother of Jesus, can be the son of Joseph and Mary. And Jude was um, somebody that also did not believe until the resurrection. And so Jesus kept saying during his earthly ministry that I'm the Messiah. And Jude is sitting there thinking, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. And then he sees him be killed. And then and he sees him come back from the dead, and he thinks, "Well, maybe, maybe you are. Maybe, maybe I should give this a second. Sh- maybe I should give this a second thought." Beyond that, uh, there's very little information. Biblical information. Now we can find other historical writers like Josephus, and there's some other ones that will talk and give us information. And there's there's a, a church history that will give us information. And there's sometimes maybe a history or le- legends that talk about Jude. But apart from that, biblically speaking, we don't have a lot of information about what Jude was doing. We have information about James because James is mentioned in the Book of Acts, and we get this idea of his interactions with Peter and in his interactions with Paul. But Jude, we really don't get a lot of information apart from Jude verse 1. He's a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James is the way that my translation says. So he says, this is who I am. So we know who is writing it. Jude is writing it. And we really don't know exactly who he is writing it to. Now it says in verse 1, to those who are called beloved God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. 
You know, other writers had written to a region. Peter is writing to a region of what is modern-day Turkey. A lot of Paul's letters, his writings was written either to T- Timothy or written to Titus or written to a specific location, whether it's Ephesus or Colossae or Galatia. Um, you had these kind of ideas, Thessalonica. Um, John is writing, we, we think, um, the first, second, third, and John, he is writing to the church. So we assume, just by the way that John addresses his letter, that he is writing to the church as well. Well, we're not privy to know if he's talking about a certain geographical region or a certain body of believers. He is mainly maybe just writing an open letter to the church and saying all Christians. That's what he says to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. So maybe it's just if you're a Christian, he is writing this to you, which I think. I think it adds relevancy to where we're at today. Because. Where Paul is writing to, let's say, the, the city, the, the church that is in Corinth, and he's addressing specific situations, specific circumstances going on. And yeah, we may say we see those happening here today. That's true. But when Jude is writing, he is writing to all Christians. And so you say, Spence, are you in this letter? Yeah, because I am one of those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So he is writing this to maybe the church at large. He's writing this to believers. Most scholars think he's writing this around 75 AD. Now, I don't know how they get that dating to say 75 AD. It's just that's the majority of them say this is when we think based upon our knowledge and our understanding and our information, they think it's around 75 AD. Now, what is he writing about? Anybody have an idea what he is writing about? The error in the church is what the Bible says. The error in the church. Have a seat, young man. Stay a while. Warning about apostasy. Do what, sir? Warning about apostasy. Warning about apostasy. All right. What else is he writing about? Any anybody else have a different something that says something different in your Bible? Talking about how things get worse and worse and worse as we get closer to the end times. Okay. I've done a topic here on the different genealogy of historical examples of unbelief and rebellion. Okay. Right. So if you look at verse 3, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all for delivered for the saints. So he, he is writing and he is saying, this is the reason. This is the reason why I am writing you. I want you to contend for the faith. Does it, does, what, what else do, what, what other phrases do we have in your translations? What else does it say? So I, here in the translation I look at, to contend for the faith that was once, all, once for all delivered for the saints. What other words might you have? Concerning our common salvation. Okay. My lecture says contend earnestly. Earnestly? Okay. So as Judah's writing, he is wanting to encourage them, and he is saying, I am calling you to an action. 
I want you to contend for the faith. I want you to stand up for the faith. You think about that idea of contending. It is going to take a stand. It is going to be in favor of. You are going to act in support of. You are going to be somebody that stands for the faith. Then in verse 4, and some of your translations may be different, but here in the translation I have, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, etc., etc., etc. You see that? Okay, so beginning at verse 4. Now, I don't know, some of you all, you may not feel comfortable about writing your Bible or marking your Bible, but if you do, circle that word for. Because everything else from verse 4 down through verse 16, everything else hinges on that little three-lettered word for. So he's writing to them, he's writing to believers, and he said, I'm writing to you so that you will take a stand for what is right. You will take a stand for what is true. You will take a stand for what God word says for or because in regards to or in light of or this is the reason why I want you to stand up for truth. So that little three letter word for is what everything else hinges on. So when you come and you study God's word you want to look for some of those some of those hinges that I call them or some of those um, other people will talk about them as being stepping stones as you're as you're moving through the word of, word of God. You want to look for those things that are what are now not waypoints. Yeah, waypoints or markers along the path that say, this is what he's trying to get at. So he says, I want you to contend for the faith, verse 4, 4, and then he goes on to explain, this is why I need you to stand up for what is true. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to sum it up. He's calling them in verse 3. He's saying have something for you to do, and then he warns them about false teachers. Warns them about apostasy. Now your Bible may have a different way of of translating it, but he's talking about false teachers. He's talking about false prophets. And he's saying, I want you to stand up for truth. Why? Because there is false teachers, false prophets, liars, deceivers, all around you. Now is this the first time so far in our work through the Bible that we've seen this kind of concern be raised? No. no. John had the same concern in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right? Peter had the same concern in 1st and 2nd Peter. James alludes to the same problem. 2nd Timothy. Paul is warning Timothy about the same problem, about these things taking place. So over and over again, especially um, in the New Testament, we see this warning from these church leaders saying, be on guard. These false teachers, these false prophets are around you and you are in danger of being influenced. You're being in danger of being misled. You're in danger of being led away from what is true from what is right. And so that's the warning he gives. He says in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. He's saying these things are subtle. These things may not be seen at the surface. People may not realize this stuff is going on. But be careful. Then starting in verse 5 all the way down through verse 16, he explains, he gives some illustrations about how we're going to know these individuals and just how dangerous these individuals are. So verse 3 and 4 is kind of the whole meat of the letter. And everything else then flows out of verse 3 and 4. So, he says, 
Stand up for truth because false teachers, truth perverters have come in and they are threatening the church. They're not just threatening the church, but they're also threatening your understanding and your adherence to what is true. So he goes on in verse 5 down through verse 16. He's going to give us some illustrations. He's going to talk about how do we how do we see these things and how do we know these things. So we're not going to read it word for word. But if you looked at verse 5 down through verse 7, he reminds them that these false teachers, God's going to hold them in judgment. And he uses some examples. He used the example of Egypt there in verse 5. And he uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. Now what do we know about Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah? All kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff, okay? They were burned? Okay. So you think about Egypt. Moses comes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh goes, not happening. And what does God do? God brings judgment down upon the Egyptian people. Their country is ruined. Then when the, the Israelites leave, they plunder the Egyptians. Then they head to the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army then come out after the Israelites. And what happens to Pharaoh and his army? They drown, right? They get drowned. So the whole country of Egypt is pretty much just desolated. Why? Because of the judgment of God. Sodom and Gomorrah. This goes all the way back to the time of Abram. Remember? And Lot had gone down there and there was homosexuality and there was immorality and there was all kinds of debauchery going on and God goes down there and he's like, that's it. The judgment of God has come. And what happens? The fire and the sulfur come down, right? And they destroy the city, right? And not just they destroy the city, but even Lot's wife gets caught up in the judgment of God because she wouldn't obey God and she wouldn't follow God and she turned back. Remember? So this is the things that he is bringing to mind. And he is saying, so these false prophets and these false teachers do not be, do not be, do not be duped to thinking that nothing's going to happen. So that's why he says in verse 5 through down through verse 7, remember this judgment of God. And if God can judge them, talking about Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah, then God can judge these false teachers. So we know that it's not a fact that God is unable or that God is unaware. That's not the question. It's not a fact that God will not judge them or that God does not know they exist. The problem with false teachers and the problem with truth perverters is not that God doesn't know. It's the influence they have on us. It's the impact they have on us. So he says, verse 8, Yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. So he gives us some symptoms here about what this looks like. And he's going to use a lot of adjectives. In verse 8, he talks about some adjectives describing these false teachers. Verse 10, he's going to describe these false teachers. Verse 12 and 13, he's going to give uh, descriptions about these false teachers as well as verse 16. He just used adjective after adjective after adjective after adjective to describe them. And he's going to just go down this laundry list and says, this is the danger. This is how you know. These are their traits. These are their symptoms that they present. And so he says in verse 8, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And then you may have some people that Jude might be writing to. And this is where sometimes people will get confused when it comes to the book of Jude. Because there's some things that Jude brings up that people are like, where did this come from? 
What, what does it have to do with the conversation? Because he talks about in verse 8, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now if you're reading this and you're going, Where did this come from? So you mean that Michael and Satan were battling for the body of Moses? So this can derail you, is what I'm trying to get at here. Sometimes you're reading, sometimes you can look at this stuff and go, what is going on there? And we miss the whole flow of Scripture. Now what does the Bible tell us happened to Moses? He kicked the bucket. He did kick the bucket, (laughs) yes. But what does the Bible tell us? He died and then God buried him in Moses. Yes, so Deuteronomy 34, right? So Moses goes up on the mountain and he said that he died and that God took care of it, right? So there wasn't anybody present when Moses died. Nobody know where Moses, nobody knows what God did with the body of Moses. Nobody know what happened. He went up on the mountain, he died on the mountain, and God handled it. Well, now you get down here and you're thinking, well, what is going on here? And is this, does this matter to this whole conversation of false teaching and the danger of false teaching? Does it matter? Well, to get off on the off-ramp of talking about Michael and Satan, that's not the point. The point is that he says that even when Michael was arguing with the devil about the body of Moses, he didn't even speak like one of these false teachers. That's what, he, that's what he says. He said, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So he's saying, what Jude is trying to get at here is there's these false teachers, and they're saying things that even the archangel Michael would not even say. And you start thinking about some of the things we start hearing on the television and some of the claims that are being made by people, and you start hearing people start talking about things that you say, not only is that not biblical, Second, where do you have that standing to talk like that? We've got to be careful. When he talks about being blasphemous, it's not just saying, I deny Christ. It's the idea that we're saying things that are hateful. We're saying things that are cutting. We're saying things that are judgmental. We're saying things that are evil. So he's saying that even when, Ar- when, when, when Michael the archangel was arguing with Satan, he wasn't even willing to talk this way as these false teachers are talking today. But, verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are devoted to all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So he says, be on guard. Be on guard. There are things, there are things that are being said that even angels know is out of bounds. That even, that, that even uh, contradict the word of God. Be on guard because of these people are getting out of their, uh, getting out of biblical realm. They're getting out of a biblical framework. And so when you listen to them, you can hear and you can listen to them and go, Hey, does that align with scripture? Yes or no. But people are becoming so brazen. People are becoming so forward. People are becoming so powerful. You 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 think about watching on television and you watch some of those people that say, you know what, if you send me money, then you will get a blessing. And, And the brazenness of people that are willing to look and say, I'm going to say under the authority of God when I have no authority on God, if you do this, then I'll do that. And be careful. This brazenness, this absolute disregard for the things, the holiness of God, be on guard. 
Verse 12, he gives another whole list of adjectives. He says, these are hidden reeds at your love feast. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So he says, this is, this is the nature. These are the kind of people we're dealing with. We need to be on guard. We need to be on guard because these false teachers, the way that Jude sees it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes, there's nothing redeeming. Be on guard. They will say things that they try to appear and they try to sound godly, but when you start looking at what they're saying and you start looking at what they're doing, then what you realize is they are waterless clouds Fruitless trees in late autumn. There's nothing there. There's no spiritual evidence there. So then he brings up another example. So if Mark, Michael the archangel and the body of Moses was not strange enough, then he brings up Enoch, Enoch in verse 14. And we say, well, why would he bring this up? In fact, even here in this, this outline that I, that I referenced uses as a starting point, they even talked about, you know, these are two stories that you don't see anywhere else in Scripture. So why do we see them here and not anywhere else? Well, I can't tell you why Jude wrote them down and we don't have them. But what do we know about Enoch? God took him up. God took him up. <clears throat> Chariot of fire. It could have been a chariot of fire. We don't, we don't know. It just said that he walked with God and he wasn't. Because in the genealogy back in the book of Genesis, it talks about the descendants coming down from Adam. And part of that descendants will say, you know, so and so who's so many old, years old and he died. And so and so was so many years old and he died. And then when it gets to Enoch, it said that he was so many years old and he walked with God and he wasn't. Kind of like he did not die of physical death because God took him home. And so he is one of two people in the Bible um, that God, that did not experience a physical death. You have Enoch and then you have Elijah. Elijah, right? And he gets taken up with the chariot of fire. Now maybe, the, maybe that's the way Enoch, we don't know, for, we don't know one way or the other. But he also, he, but now he comes in and he references Enoch. And now again, you and I could be reading this and we could use this as an off-ramp to get distracted and go, now where is he going with this? What is he saying there? But really what he's trying to do is he wanted to illustrate that even Enoch knew of the danger of false teachers. And even Enoch knew that God could bring judgment upon these people. Even Enoch knew that the danger is not with the fact that God doesn't see them or that God doesn't know they exist or that God can't do anything about them. The danger is the influence they have in the people's lives around them. That's the danger of the false teachers. That's the danger of the truth perverters. And so he says in verse 16, another series of adjectives. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desire. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Loudmouthed boisters. We need to be careful when we're listening to people. And when all they want to do is talk about themselves and how much Jesus loves them and how much Jesus uses them and how much they know about Jesus and, yeah. and all the attention is on me, 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 me. Be careful. Be careful because they might be in that category of a loud mouth boaster. 
malcontent. What does that mean? Never happy, right? It's never, it's never enough. One of the things that I detest when you get in a gathering with other church leaders, you get in this gathering with other church leaders, and you know how normally you're in a conversation with a group of people, and the, usually the conversation goes something like, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? Okay? When you get a whole group of preachers together, the conversation goes like, well, how many are you running now? Well, how many are you running now? Well, how many are you running now? What they're talking about is what your attendance looks like. None of them say, are you being faithful? None of them say, are are you seeking to be obedient to God? None of them say, how is the faithfulness of the people that you do have? All the question is, is how many people, how many seats do you have in the pews? What a terrible metric to gauge obedience and faithfulness from. What a terrible thing. And so when they say they're malcontent, all the preachers are looking around and it's like, what does it matter? What does it matter whether it's 5 or 50 or 500? Because sometimes, even in ministry, you can become malcontent. You're not satisfied with the people. You're not satisfied with the numbers. You're not satisfied with the ones that are there. So Jude gives all of this explanation to trying to talk about these false teachers. And he's trying to talk about how will you know them and how will you identify them and the danger of them. And here's what they do. And here's how they can creep in. And here's how they can have influence. And here's how they can be present. And it even says up there in verse uh, 12, shepherds feeding themselves. It's the idea that you have false teachers, you have false prophets, you have truth perverters. They go by the title of proster. You have false teachers, truth perverters that go by the title of ministry leader. You have false teachers, truth perverters that go by the title of respected in church circles. You have those. And that's a danger. Now, when Jude's addressing this, he's addressing it for the danger that it is to us. Ponder with me a minute. Let's say somebody walks in the room and they've got a big sign and says, I'm a false teacher. What is the biggest concern with that person? What's that individual's concern? What's our biggest concern with that person? Lack of salvation. Lack of salvation. Leading people in the wrong direction. Okay. Why did he come here? What's he doing here? Okay. I'm a deceiver. Okay. Why did he come here? Okay. Sure. Any other ideas? Just off of a few things. What are you a false teacher of? Right? <laughs> like, what are you false teaching? <laughs> what if he doesn't know he's false teaching? Maybe he can't read a shirt. <laughs> okay. Possible. <laughs> All right. Here's your sign. So some things I wrote down was... Some things I wrote down is that... Our biggest concern is that when that person comes in, that person is opposing God. That person 
behaving in such a way, pursuing in such a way, they are living opposed to God. And when they're living opposed to God, now that means that they are denying God's authority over their lives. So when that false teacher walks in, it's not a matter of, well, I don't like what you say, or I don't agree with what you say, or what you say doesn't resonate with us. The bigger danger is, is that person is opposing God and denying authority, and then down from that is they're perverting truth. They are perverting truth. And that becomes a very dangerous situation when you have people that will pervert truth to people that do not know the difference. So growing up, um, it was very common in my parents' house that we would play cards. Spades, pitch, hearts. And then every once in a while, Dad would get out his, he had a big old gallon jar that he saved up. Um, he would keep all this change in that jar. And he always said it was his air conditioner money because it was, I, mean, I was 15 until we had an air conditioner. So he'd put all that money in that jar. And then when the window unit would go out in my parents' bedroom, he would use that money to go buy another AC window unit for my parents' bedroom. And so every once in a while, my dad would get that jar out and he would pour it out on the table and us kids would all divvy up and we'd all get us some, some change. And we sat down and we start playing cards. <laughs> now it all went back in the jar, but we'd start playing cards. Well, if you start playing cards with money in front of you, there's two questions you got to ask, or there's one question that you got to ask: Are aces high or are aces low? Because depending on the game, sometimes the ace will be high, sometimes the ace will be low, depending on the, the particular type of game that you're playing. And so it's one of those things we have to ask ourselves, according to the rules, are aces high or aces low? Now, depending on if somebody said, you know what, aces are low, but they're really high, then that ruins the whole way you're going to play the game. Tracking with me? Are you, are you tracking with me? Or vice versa. And so when you pervert truth and you say aces are low and they're not low, then that changes the whole outcome of what is going on. So when that false teacher comes in and they pervert truth, and they don't even have to pervert truth and deny and say the Bible isn't true. If they just twist it and if they just tweak it and if they just add a little shade to it or they detract a little bit from it and all of that stuff is going on and just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, then they start to malign what God's Word says. And that's a danger. Because when they pervert truth, then everything is up for debate. So the, the danger of the false teacher, as Jude is trying to explain it to us, is the fact that where they stand before God and their opposition to God, and when that influence and that is around us, then that will enter into our sphere and our way of living. So in verse 17, that is why then he calls them to, he wants to encourage them and wants to call them to persevere. So he says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people, the of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So he says, yes, you understand that there are false teachers. Yes, you understand there are truth perverters around you. But do you know how you guard against 
the false teaching? Do you know how you guard against that wayward influence? He says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. He said, the best guard against the influence of false teaching is a strong, mature faithfulness before God. The best defense against the false teachers is knowing what is true. The best defense against false teachers is knowing what is right. The best defense against the false teachers is being filled with the Spirit of God. And sometimes we look for other people to fill us up. Sometimes we look for other people to give us instructions. Sometimes we look for other people to lead us and tell us what is right and what is wrong. But we need to be careful. Let me give you an example. There is a series of YouTube videos called The Bible Project. I haven't watched every single one of them. I was asked to watch some of them. And as I'm watching some of them, um, something's off. Something's off and I don't know. If you said, well, Spence, can you point to whatever it is in that video that is wrong? I could not, I could not pick it out. About four weeks ago, the guy that created the whole set of videos is speaking at a church service on the West Coast. And he is speaking in favor of um, accepting same-sex relationships and promoting same-sex lifestyles in the church leadership. And when I hear that, I think, okay, I don't agree with that. And not just I don't agree with it, the Bible is clearly in opposition to that. And so, I, I can see, I can see the danger, and I can see the problem because of what the Bible says to be true and what the Bible says to be right and what this person says to be true and what the person says to be right do not go together. And two things that are different cannot be the same. It cannot be the same. Two things that are different cannot be the same. So whenever you hear somebody do that, I don't need to go, I don't need to think to myself, well, let me give that person a second chance. Or let me just ignore that because maybe we agree on other things. No, when they have chosen to pervert truth, you need to be guarded. And you need to be careful. And you need to watch out. Because if they'll deceive in that point, They'll deceive in other points. They'll twist in other points. They'll twist in other areas. So Jude says, listen, these false teachers, these false prophets, these truth perverters, they're out there. So how do you guard against it? You pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit. You pursue the things of God. (laughs) Telling you. Telling you. Telling you. Uh, Well, (laughs) but how do you do that? You pursue those things. So then in verse 24 and 25, he just gives a prayer. He gives a prayer and prays for the people. Now, what is the big takeaway that I want you to hear from this? Big takeaway is, is that there's false teachers all around us. False prophets. And there's a constant danger of you and I being influenced little by little by little. 
And there's a constant danger. Where are you going? I gotta go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. <laughs> there's a constant danger of you and I. Little by little. That's your boy. That's your boy. Don't look at me. <laughs> but we gotta be on guard. Because it's all around us. And there's a reason why the Holy Spirit keeps inspiring these writers. You may say, well, preacher, that's all the preacher wants to keep talking about. Well, that's because that's what the Bible is talking about. And one of the greatest threats and one of the greatest dangers of the church today, not the greatest and not the biggest, but one of the greatest, is that the church does not know the truth. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the people in the church. They do not know the truth. So just picture with me, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, I get up and I say, if you would, please take your Bible and turn it to Hezekiah chapter 4. How many people in the room would have started on their electronic device or started opening their Bible? I don't know. I don't have a scientific number, but just imagine. I mean, we can all look and go, you know, somebody, somebody would. Maybe one of you all would. I didn't, maybe, maybe I'm stepping on your toes, but it's one of those things that we've got to know. We've got to know the truth. We've got to know that Hezekiah is not a book of the Bible. Now, how does that come? That comes through growth. That comes through understanding. That comes through knowledge. That comes through being filled with the Holy Spirit. But yet we have people that have been in the church for years and years and years and years and years, and they still don't know what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible. We've got to be on guard. We've got to be on guard against those false teachers, those subtle truth perverters, and those things that do not align with the truthfulness of God's Word.